I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. Emmy, thank you so much for um, spending some time with us tonight. It's, I don't know, it's uh, uh, 11 o'clock UK time at the moment. Um, so I just wanted to sort of start off um, simply um, is from, from one of your, your recordings in the weekend university, you sort of asked the sort of the, the everyone sort of what, what meanings set them on fire. So I'm wondering what are the meanings that set you on fire, Emmy, in your life? Right. Well, that's, that's a good question to begin with, isn't it? Um, let's see if I can get myself fired up with that. Certainly, um, I think the thing that um, sets me on fire the most is to uh, make a small difference to the world in making it a little more fair and a little less um, miserable and upsetting for the many people who find it difficult. That is certainly uh, a very important thing. And in that respect, what I am most driven by is to give a voice to people who don't have a voice and to help people who have been disenfranchised and feel that the world is sort of against them. So those are the things that I identify with the most. Mm -hmm. And because I've done okay for myself and sort of gotten into a place where those things are no longer quite so uh, difficult for myself, I very much want to do something for the people who haven't gotten to that point. So that is certainly one of the things that really drives me. The other thing is, um, is to learn as much as I can and find out about as many things as I can and to understand life better and therefore to get better at living. That's also always been a very important driving force. And the other, if I'm honest, is love and being loved and appreciated. So you'll you'll get me to do a lot of things just by the idea that it will make people like me or it will make me feel like I'm a good person. So those those are definitely things that that will trigger me. And I have, you know, in my day tried to work with that and stop being quite so needy of feeling, you know, that I can love people and they can love me, but I've given up on that. I just know that that's very much part of the way I am. And I've kind of accepted that. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as I'm aware of what the boundaries of that are and learn how to protect myself. Um, and then finally, I would mention creativity. So I have um, a lot of things I like to do besides teaching and writing and doing therapy. Um, I um, write my own songs and I play the guitar. And I, when I, was, I, learned, I told myself that at the age of 15 and... Um, when I was a student, I used to go play the guitar and sing my songs in cafes and restaurants in France, where I lived. And that actually was a bit of extra income at the time when I really badly needed that. Mm. And I still do that. And actually, I have posted a lot of them up on YouTube. 
and I have started going to a recording studio to record some of my songs so that they don't get lost. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that, that I paint. I have painted in oils all my life. And that's one of the things that uh, that really relaxes me. And so, yeah, that too um, is something that uh, that really sets me on fire, getting better at painting and just expressing myself that way. And, uh, oh, I can start painting. And before I know it, it's three hours gone and I haven't been aware at all where I was. It's like mm. going into a dream. I literally enter into the landscape that I'm painting. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, it's very layered um, and um, such an important, um, such a, such an inquisitive life you live, such a, um, you know, it's, it's funny because we initially, uh, I came into contact with a lot of your work from, you know, an existential philosophical lens. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's amazing that, um, you know, you have this sort of idea of of a person from a textbook or from YouTube or from, you know, um, these lectures and, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that people listening here, um, you know, connect to, to Emmy as, as, as a person and the whole person um, because you've got, you know, you've clearly got so much expertise and knowledge in, in this area. Um, but um, just as important is, you know, the oil paintings um, and any other parts of your life that, um, yeah, as mm. you said, set you on fire. Well, then I should add grandchildren and my dog who is a wire-haired Vizsla who I'm besotted by and Bruno. I like to go for walks with Bruno yes, yeah. and play with him yeah and Emmy you're approaching 70 is that right I am 70 you're yes 70. I turned 70 in December so I'll be 71 this year <laughs> yeah and what's that like I like that very much. I used to say, I remember very well saying this when I worked uh, in a college in my 20s in London, and we were talking about um, what age we all felt we were. And, you know, I was obviously very much younger than a lot of the other staff members. And I disgusted them all by saying, I felt like I was 70 or 80 and I had felt like that all my life. And I was looking forward to actually catching up with myself and being that age. Mm -hmm. And people said, oh, that's really bad. You know, you should enjoy your youth and all of that. And I said, but, you know, I've always been way too preoccupied with things that are not of that age. And it will be such a relief to feel that it suits the age I am. And by that time, I hopefully will have acquired some wisdom. So it's true. I really was looking forward to it. And I'm delighted to be that age. I'm actually really pleased I made it that far. Mm. I I wondered if I would, you know. I, I had a um, very serious accident at the age of 10. And uh, I could very well have died. And I survived. But it gave me this sort of sense that my life might be cut short at any point, really. So to have made it to 70, I think, is quite a feat of persistence. And I'm glad I made it in one piece so far so good. And I hope I have another decade to make good on it and and use it well. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope so. Do, do, Do you have plans? I mean, for the next decade let's say do you have um 
you know, do you, do you yes, shake well, it? We, we have decided to retire from my husband and I to retire from our roles as principal and deputy principal of the new school of psychotherapy and counseling, which is, you know, a very big job and keeps us too busy. And we've decided it's time for the next generation to take that on. But of course, we'll still be directors of that company. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully a little less academic managerial work from 2023 onwards Mm. making more room for more writing and more painting uh, more time with the dog uh, more singing more creativity more time with the grandchildren all those kinds of things Mm. Mm. and possibly I will carry on seeing clients though because I want to stay in touch with with other people's lives and and play that role in in their lives to to help them out because that is what inspires my writing I couldn't write in the same way if if I stopped doing that I feel I would become too self-centered so I always want to to keep giving something making some kind of contribution but you Mm. know maybe I will find new ways of making contributions different things to do in the neighborhood I don't know I've got an open mind Amy, I um, read in one of your books, uh, you were describing, well, I think it was when your dad died, uh, mm. you felt a little bit closer to death, like mm. the lights had lit up in the background. They were that little bit lighter. Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. Yeah, that that real sense that life moves on and that the generation before you has gone over the top as it were and that therefore your life approaches death and comes closer to it 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 makes it more real instead of speaking about death in a more theoretical way you then actually speak from your own experience of what it is like because you have sat with your dad or later on with with your mum and you have had all those final talks about you know where we went wrong and where we went right and what we will keep close to our hearts and what they think they're now going to do next what their beliefs about that are and it does bring it very close in because you've got to put yourself in their position you know it's not just arm's length it's it's really there and sitting in those last hours, you know, for hours and hours with somebody who is gradually kind of leaving you, as it were, disappearing from the earth. It's a weird thing. Death is a very weird thing. Birth is a very weird thing too, but death is such a strange, strange experience. At least with birth, you know, we have some idea of what's going on and we have a pretty good picture of you know, the baby coming out and what will happen next. But with death, it's like you say goodbye and then that's it. You don't know what happens. And and none of us do know what happens. But, you know, you have to just accept it and go Mm -hmm. to that edge and then take yourself back and and live some more. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, How old were you when when both your parents died, we did it have transition at different times. 
Yeah, so my dad died in 2006 and my mum died in 2015. So they were quite different experiences because obviously when my dad died, they had been together. uh, Well, they had been together for 70 years. So it was very much the two of them dealing with it at first. But with my mum, she lived on her own for those eight years and um, nine years. And she uh, she had become quite enmeshed again, I think, with my sister and myself because she was so needy of us, so lonely. Mm. And, and that made it a very much more intense experience. And I had had a very intense ex- um, relationship with my mother when, when I was little as well. Mm. And that sort of came back at the end. Right. And... So that that experience of being close to the edge at the time of um, your let's just say your your mother's death, mm. what was that like emotionally? That experience. How did you make sense of it? What what came up for you? What does close to the edge look like? Mm. Yes. Gosh. Well, I really have to think about this a little bit more carefully. It's such a specific question you're asking me. Well, I think there's all these different phases in it. You know, there's the phase when you know. Well, let's say when when I knew my mother would die. Um, she was ninety one and was. You know, we all assumed she would get to 92, but then suddenly she got breast cancer and it got quite bad and she didn't want the operation. And so it went much faster than we were imagining. She was in such good nick up to then. So first it's that shock of, yes, here we're coming to the end of something that I have known for, what was it, uh, 64 years in my life. Which will disappear, this relationship. It's not just, you know, your mother is going. It's like that part of yourself that is alive when you are with your mother is going to disappear forever. And it will remain what it was in those last moments. So there is an incredible intensity and importance of focus on the relationship that starts to happen. And because I didn't live in the same country as she did, I started like I had done with my father on a phase of going backwards and forwards with airplanes and ferries um, to to visit my mother almost every week at the end. And then when we knew it was the end, I stayed with her in a hotel, but I spent most of my time with her uh, where by her bed. Uh, talking and reading to her and listening to her and sorting things through and helping her with some of the regrets she had. And my husband sang uh, opera to her because she wanted some kind of sense of sacredness about it, but it shouldn't be religious. So we we discovered ways in which we could do it. There were texts she wanted me to read from the Bhagavad Gita, which she believed greatly in and she raised me with, by the way. So we did all that. And that created this very special sense of a standing 
in that place together. And as I said, my husband was very much part of that too. So was my sister to a large extent. And then it went into a phase, of course, where she became incapacitated. So where we had to do things for her, you know, clean her mouth, uh, because she couldn't really swallow anymore, clean her face, brush her hair, um, reassure her because she started to be anxious about the process. And these very concrete things like how people deal with going to the toilet at the end in those final days, which makes it very... Um, yeah, concrete and very much like when you look after a baby. So it brings you back to the essence of what it is to be human and not to be self-sufficient any longer. And it tears at your heart to see somebody you have known always full of vitality to go down that path. It's almost as if they're slipping down a rock as it were and they go down 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 and you know at one point they will just release it and let it go and they'll fall into the abyss and you got to make sure that at that point you're not hanging down that rock with them so you got to get safe ground under your own feet so that you can remove yourself from the edge when it's done and go back to your own life with greater strength rather than having been undermined by that experience. So that balancing of your own power, giving as much as they need from you, but also retaining enough to remember that you still stand with both feet on the earth and you're not going to slide down that slippery slope. And I think that is what I learned from accompanying my mother more than anything, how important it was for me to claim my own life and to know that for the first time, you know, they say when both your parents are dead, you become an orphan. And in a way, that is true, that for the first time, even though you're in your mid 60s, for the first time, you stand alone in the world. And your life is your own for whatever time you've got left. So it's a very moving thing. It's really as if your parent cuts off the umbilical cord and says, that's it. Now it's all yours. Mm. So there's a lot you, you get from that experience. If you go into it, you know, knowing what is required of you and knowing what you want out of it rather than experience it as some sort of tragedy or something that will tear you apart. It's very important to be there for the person dying without imposing your, your upset and your sadness. And of course there is huge amount of sadness about it. The loss is, is huge. Mm. I think uh, the way you describe that, Amy, it's it's so beautiful and and complex. Um, probably not what I was expecting uh, from mm. an existentialist um, philosopher, psychologist, whatever you would call yourself. Um, but but it it does make me wonder, um, Amy, do, do you hold a similar approach to your own death? Well, yes, I am still. Um... 
trying to figure it out. I think one of my projects is to write a book on existential spirituality because I really want to research this properly and look at different world religions and looking at, you know, what the existential philosophers have said about it very carefully. And then I want to puzzle it out, what I believe. Mm. And then I want to write that down because I think people really do need a different approach to these sorts of topics. Mm. And and there, there haven't been many systematic uh discussions about that in the existential literature because existentialists are supposed to be so um, practical about it and so existentially based so you know death that's it it's the end Mm -hmm. but it isn't it clearly never is the end Mm -hmm. as as Yalom very clearly pointed out we carry on to be alive in the minds of those who stay behind for starters yeah. You know, that is how we live on, but also by the things we've, we've, the mark we've made on the earth or the things we have created that stay behind. But I think it's much, much more than that. Um, I personally believe that during life, we make connections, not just with other people, but with ideas as well. And with forces like the force of love, the force of understanding, the force of meaning, lots and lots of complex ideas that we connect with and we become part of and we become enmeshed with. And that remains after our death. So I think what we manage to contribute to the world of ideas and to the world of the spirit will survive our physical death. But I haven't quite figured out exactly how I think that happens. So um, this is something that's a task ahead of me. And I look forward to that. I look forward to really coming up with an alternative way of looking at these things. Mm. Emmy, has there there been a time where you know, you, you, you've got a, such a wholesome view on, 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 on death by the sounds of it in, in the sense that it's, it is, we, we don't know what happened. We don't know our, our memories, our, our, our existence um, becomes nothing. It becomes, it becomes, it becomes something in the, in the past, but we, we don't know what happened. We've got, we, well, we don't know the consciousness or, know. Nobody knows. That's one thing we know for sure. Nobody knows. Mm. What we do know, one thing we do really know, is that this earthly body that we have, you know, gotten so used to and we have uh, used as our instrument to be alive, that will definitely die. And we also, and gosh, and that's no joke, you know, when you sit, my, my dad wanted to, be left alone for three days after his death. And I tell you, when you sit with a dead body for three days, seeing it decay and starting to smell, that is no joke. That's very unpleasant. There is no doubt that the human body, when it dies, is something to be discarded 
and it doesn't feel at all like the person that used that body. That's very clear to me. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing. It becomes a thing, a thing that is not alive and therefore decays. We're also very sure, well, I am very sure, maybe not everyone agrees with this, but I am very sure that when I die, this ego that I have created, this person I have created, the Emmy van Dersen character who has lived these various experiences, that ego will also die because that is tied in with this body and therefore it will die. And the question is, how can we purify something beyond the body and the social aspects of our existence that has a different kind of life cycle and that has a different presence in the world? And I certainly think that the relationship we create with ourselves in the intimacy of our inner world is of a different quality. There is something that happens there when we get it right that creates space, that creates something intangible. And I think the life of our meaning making and our value making and our moral life, as it were, our ideological life, our philosophical life, there's definitely something about that that, as I said, I'm very intrigued by, and I wonder what happens to that after death. Mm. That garden metaphor that you spoke about on one of your videos, maybe you can explain that to the listeners which garden metaphor was that? I use garden metaphors a lot. <laughs> you have a few garden metaphors. <laughs> this one I listened to, uh, you spoke about how you're, you're preparing your inner garden um, inside your, your head and it's, it's the most important place you'll ever be. Um, mm. and you talk about the weeds. I don't want to explain it for you. Why don't yes, you? Oh, yes, okay. So, so this is about working with the space inside of ourselves, which Mm -hmm. I've come to experience in very much the same way as my physical outdoor garden. And in the same way as the garden has seasons and, you know, different climates. So our internal worlds have different seasons and different uh, weather happening in them, which is our emotions. And, It has, you know, a different style according to who we are. So not every garden is the same as every other garden. And so we are given this kind of space inside of us, in our heads, in our hearts, in our whole bodies. And I think it's also around us. I think that space is not just, you know, in the body. It is what comes with us. It is sort of the sphere we create around us. And we can learn to value that and to take it seriously and to cultivate it, not to let it go to pot and wreck and ruin, but to actually value it and see when it goes wrong on you and when it goes right. And with every day doing a bit further work on it so that you can enjoy seeing it flourish and you get the experience of having this rich 
space in the world which doesn't tread on anybody else's space which is yours and yours alone and for which you are responsible and where there are so many opportunities to create joy for yourself and a sense of accomplishment and a sense of fulfillment and a sense of vitality and a sense of creativity Nobody can take that away from you. It's very similar to what Frankl said about what he discovered when he was in the concentration camp. Mm. The thing, you know, that he discovered that we can make meaning by taking things from the world in a hedonistic way, you know, enjoying what the world offers us and making the most of that. We can also enjoy contributing to the world with our own creativity but beyond that we can find meaning by the way we hold ourselves in the world and he formulated it as the way we face suffering but it's not just about suffering it's also about suffering but it is also about the everyday how I live, you know, how I get up in the morning, how I eat my breakfast, how I am with the people around me, how I approach the tasks and the duties I have during that day, how I make room for myself, how I reflect on what I have said or what has been said to me and what that is about and how I might find a bit more freedom in that and open it up a bit and change it, altering it or repairing it if necessary, how I can use my power to respond to the world and have this safe, sacred space that I carry with me and that I'm constantly sculpting. Mm. And the better I make it, the more everything that happens to me is meaningful and opens up more possibilities for me. So it is, it is of the essence, you know, it is, it is a very fundamental task, I think, in, in life. Mm. And, and experiencing the meaning, uh, I, I'm assuming that there's, you, you speak a lot about emotion and emotion being the, the orientation of where we stand, you know, where, where we're placed in, a, in any given situation, um, which, you know, everything that I've read or, or seen online, um, I always want more. I always want, especially the, the Passion and Paradox book, you, you, you go into the emotional mm. dialogue and the, and the compass and all your sort of beautiful metaphors and experiences there. Um, I would love to you, if you can, describe to me how emotion is our orientation how how it it, it um dictates you know. yes so feelings are everything and feelings are experienced as sensations in the body they are experienced as emotions in relation to other people they're experienced as thoughts with a sort of feeling component atmospheres in our internal world and they're experienced as intuitions at a sort of idea level so it's not just about emotions it's about all these experiences we have it's really the experiential 
aspect of being alive in all the ways in which we tune into the world at those different levels we can see where we are in relation to what happens or in relation to people or things that matter to us or ideas that matter to us from the flavor of the emotions the sensations or the intuitions or the thoughts that come through us and so to be aware of those is the first step to be aware that we meet the world not in a neutral way never in a neutral way but always heavily colored in the sense that we are already approaching something in a particular modality, in a particular attunement, in a particular assumption about things. And then what we meet affects us and how it affects us can be tuned as well. And we can either just be reactive to the world and just let our emotions or our feelings or sensations take us over and become a pain or something we want to get rid of because it disturbs it. Or we can learn to recognize what it tells us. And when we dare to feel things strongly and deeply, whatever it is, whether it is what we would call good or positive feelings or negative feelings, makes no difference we can learn to have each of those flavors of attunement and get the richness from it. I can learn to use anger, for instance. I I like to use anger because anger for me was a very difficult thing when I was a child. I could have sworn, and I still believe it, that I didn't experience anger until I was in France and I lived with my French boyfriend and he was very good at anger. And I just suddenly discovered that I could be angry too and that I had basically suppressed it to fit in with, you know, the other characters in my family for the longest time. And it was such a liberation, but of course it's also frightening. So I had to learn, A, that I could do anger just as well as the next person, but for some reasons I hadn't allowed myself it. And B, when I did start to allow myself, I didn't want to go over the top with it. I didn't want it to run my life. And so I had to discover the anger in myself before it exploded. And that is what we do when we learn to use the emotional compass. We recognize I'm irritated about something. What has happened? What is this feeling telling me? What has happened? Somebody is thwarting me in some way. So each emotion, you know, is a specific indication about something that's happening to me in the world or something I am doing or something other people are doing or events that are happening. And I learn to recognize that when I feel irritation, I immediately tune into it instead of tuning out. And I immediately know this is where it comes from. And very often it comes from something that happened like, you know, it's not always immediate 20 minutes ago or half an hour ago. Or if you're very busy and you shove things aside, it might be three hours ago. But, you know, 
this is what somebody said, or this is what happened. And what I didn't do was this. I didn't stand my ground or I didn't respond in the right way. And that's left with me. And now I feel this simmering beginning of anger. So how do I need to act on it? I need to fix this. I need to go to that person or I need to do this action that will make that different, that will shift the way in which I am in my world. And then when I do it, I feel intense relief and satisfaction that I am once again on top of my world and happy to go around with my emotions, but not run by my emotions and not run down by my emotions as most people are and certainly not suppressing the damn things as I did as a child that is the worst thing to do that's how you end up suicidal or explosive you know well okay you you've you've, there's so many different areas that I want to go down right now um (laughs) and but but I'll I'll stay with the, the compass um, for a minute because that's sort of you sort of attuned to that um, so the compass is a, a, a sort of a varied emotion that is related to a, to a loss of or, or a threat to, to something to, to a value to something that you so they're basically four emotions so the compass is is a round thing right or it's a bit like a clock if you like as well so the the magnetic north north points towards that which will make me feel happy which will make me feel yeah now things are all right with the world so this is about my values it is about the things i desire it is about the things i want to move towards and when i'm united with that then i feel on top of the world then i feel i can relax and it's like everything is well with the world and things are okay but this never lasts because life is dynamic and we are empty vessels you know and things happen to us the whole time so it's not possible to hold on to happiness and it's not possible to control things to be fully alive You have to allow yourself to float and go with the flow of the river of life. And that means that things will float past you. You will not get where you want it. Things will go wrong. Things will happen to you. The weather will change. People will dislike you. People will go against you or envy you or all sorts of things. And so that creates all these other emotions. When it feels as if you've lost everything that is of value, you go to the bottom, far away from your magnetic north, right down at the bottom where you feel blue, where you feel depressed, where you feel sad. But going down there goes through all these different phases, you know, going down a little bit from the top of your world, you become defensive, you become a bit arrogant, holding on to what you value. A little bit further, you feel jealous, you feel like you have to look after things, you feel you have to kind of hold on tight. Then you slip into that anger zone, which is such an important place because that is where you really, you know, are on the cusp of going into loss. 
the things you value will be lost. So, you know, you either learn to deal with the anger and stand up for yourself, or you learn to slip down and give up, which is what I used to do. You give up in fear, thinking other people are stronger than you, that, you know, you don't stand a chance in this world. So then you live a life of fear and you live a life of loss and a life that goes down and down further to the bottom where there's nothing. But if you allow yourself to lose certain things and go with the flow of the loss, like, you know, the loss of somebody dying, for instance, and you're with that and you let it happen, then you go neatly past that bottom bit. You will feel that low point and that darkness, like you feel, you know, how it is in the middle of the night. But you go to sleep a bit, you, you let yourself off the hook a bit, you know, you go into peace. And then you can swing back up and find the things that are valuable to you. And you find ways to put your life's energy towards those. So you learn to let go of the things that are a loss to you, which there will be many every day. And you learn to go back and find your way forward back to the things that are of value to you. And this at so many different levels. So this will be true about, you know, little things that go bad with your body, like, you know, you may have given in and eaten too many sweets in the morning, which sometimes I, I get the, uh, the, the, the desire to eat lots of licorice. Well, then, of course, you get a bit of cramp in your stomach. It's not a good idea to do these things. So you have to let that go and you have to go for a walk and then all is well again with the world. You know, that's a very practical, small, daily thing. But that needs attention just as much as every relationship that is happening for you, you know, just to the people on public transport or the people in your office or the people you meet online or the people in your house. Every single strand will take you through your emotional compass in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And the more you learn about this and the more you become aware in the moment that these things are happening. And therefore you can start guiding your little boat down that river. Instead of just rushing down with the flow, you're beginning to prepare for it. And you're beginning to, you know, deal with these things as they happen. And so they become good experiences rather than frightening experiences or experiences that make you feel distraught or that make you feel like things are always going to go wrong for you, which is kind of what most clients feel when they come to therapy. You know, they say things like, I just cannot do it. You know, I can't be in a relationship. It always go wrong. People always do this to me. Or this always happens to me. Or I can just not find the right job for myself because I always have managers that do this to me or that to me. People live lives for years and years pinning these strange ideas on themselves, believing themselves to be incapable and incompetent. Nonsense. 
everybody comes with so much more ability than we realize and so many more opportunities than we realize. And it's sometimes these small things just getting hung up on, you know, regular emotions because we do something in a rather silly way all the time or we assume that we're incapable all the time mm. when actually that is just not true. And and what role do you think uh, our, our focus on always being happy has on that, um, on, on that negative voice and that... Thanks and for that question. Medicalising, not being at the north side of that wheel. Yes. Well, the medicalization of human unhappiness is something I feel very strongly about. I wrote an entire book on that called Psychotherapy and the Quest for Happiness and quite a, quite a while ago. And that was really my response to the beginning of positive psychology, because much as I think positive psychology is an important branch of psychology, learning about some of the positives, it, it really puts a lot of pressure on people. And it is very much in keeping with this consumerist society where we feel we need to buy physical pleasure for ourselves all the time. And we ought to be happy bunnies all the time because that's how we're supposed to be. So if we don't meet that standard, if we're not successful and we're not happy all the time and we haven't got enough money to constantly you know, enjoy ourselves, then we think we are a failure. Mm. But far from it, all that is happening is that we learn to be realistic about the world and we discover that life is not about getting ourselves to the top of the world and feeling always, you know, like we, we are a million dollars and it's all fantastic and fabulous and, yo man, you know, we're smiling all the time. No, it's about being at ease with being alive at ease with being who you are, you of all people, you, specifically you, who you are, and being who you are as you can be it. That discovery that you can live your life in a uniquely personal way, like nobody else have lived it before. You're entitled to that and you're capable of that. And you have the freedom to claim that prize. But people simply, A, don't know that, don't believe it. And if they do, they don't know how to do it. Or they lose their courage in doing so as soon as somebody starts criticizing them. So a lot of years of people's lives are lost in a lot of worry and a lot of upset that is actually quite unnecessary. And I, the same certainly has been true for me when I, when I look back, you know, there are periods in my life when I became very upset about certain losses I had suffered and it took me a decade to get over it. This is when the, um, the uh, college that I had built over 15, 16 years 
was taken away from me and I had to start from scratch creating the new school of psychotherapy but you know this was such a blow for me to have to start again with five students when I had 400 students and to lose all my colleagues and to lose my reputation it was a huge blow and it felt like a failure and I lived for a decade with the shame and the guilt of something like that having happened to me and the upset about it, but very gradually discovering that maybe, just maybe, this had been a blessing in disguise because I would never had had the courage to start again. I would have been stuck with that one thing. And suddenly, lots of other roads opened for me and I had to think creatively again and I could do so many new things and I was free to you know do things in my own way much more and as it turns out it absolutely was one of the best things that ever happened to me but it took me a decade to really make that happen and to own it and to own the goodness of it, rather than just own the heartache of it, which it certainly gave me. That's amazing. I think I listened to a podcast where you were talking about that in, in quite a bit of detail. Um, and I'm interested in... We never in, in... spoke about it in a lot of detail because they took me to court and I'm yeah. under a gagging order. So I can't talk about the detail, oh, which dear. is one of yeah. the things that was so deeply annoying about it. Right. And people being able to make stories up about it rather than knowing the truth of what had happened. Mm-hmm. It's very isolating and disenfranchising. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things it did is it, it made me far, far more understanding of when things like that happen to other people. It made me fully aware of how completely, totally undermining that is and how that goes through all the layers of your life. And, you know, seeing other people in that situation or other situations, my heart goes out to them because it takes all you've got to resurface from that and then to find your strength with it. But I tell you, these very bad things that happen to us, they are always the things that make us so much stronger and so much bigger and so much wider and so much deeper than we were before. Mm. So we shouldn't be afraid of them mm. as much as we are. Mm. It, it reminds me of something you've talked about around befriending your your demons, almost getting understanding the darker side of yourself and really coming to come into focus. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, most definitely. Yeah. Have you have you had to contemplate your darker side many times over oh, your life? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, always, always. Well, especially during that period, because mm. as I said, when when people could just project things onto me because I didn't have a voice anymore I became aware of how some people saw me you know um, as somebody who was very ambitious or who just couldn't stand the fact that she was no longer number one or and I had to ask myself whether maybe they were right about that and of course I discovered that yes 
you know, I had spent a long time trying to prove myself to people and to overcome the sense that I was inferior and that um, I wasn't as good as people who do quantitative research. And maybe that's why people didn't want me anymore, because, you know, I wasn't equal to those big names who have done the neurosciences. And maybe that's what I should have done. And, you know, all these self-doubts, the realization that a lot of one's motivations come from trying to prove ourselves or maintain ourselves in the world against other people, that constant feeling that we, you know, are weak or that we aren't as good as others. Those are all my dark sides. And also the things you might have done in order to overcome that. And, and we do things like that, you know, for instance, um, I, I became aware that I was trying to bypass things, to um, to take shortcuts in life sometimes, and that I had to learn not to do that, to really, if I wanted to write something, not to quickly, quickly figure out what, you know, people had said, but to take my time and to chew it over and to write from experience and from the heart rather than producing another paper mm. to slow down and to take myself seriously and to not ever believe the dark voices against me, but to take that darkness, look at it, allow it and to find out what it is really about and how I can open it up so that too can be part of who I am. Welcoming it and using its strength and its power, especially using the knowledge that it can't be held against me if I have accepted it. I don't have to be a, an angel anymore. I can be a devil sometimes, mm. you know. I can allow myself to think about how I sometimes maybe didn't spend as much time with my children as I might have, and that I do have regrets about that. To know that maybe sometimes I was a bit too keen to be seen to be better than other people when really there was no reason to assume that I was. Why did I need to think I was better? But, you know, these are things that come to us all. We fail in lots of ways. We have weaknesses and these are human things. They don't make us bad people. They just mm. make us human and if you can forgive yourself for these things and be compassionate and have understanding, then it turns into something else because then you can forgive other people for it too. It made, made me think about that, that tension between the love and the hate, you know, hating yourself, hating parts of yourself. But at the end mm. of the day, it's, it's, the, it's, it's a full spectrum. You know, it's not about necessarily being one or the other or halfway. You, you no, experience it no. all 
No, no. And it's about mitigating the hate, isn't it? It's about mm. accepting the hate and turning it into dislike and then in turning it into having to actually find out more what it is that you think you dislike and what there might be at the core of what you dislike that is actually vital for you to embrace. Mm. And you will almost always find some hidden strength, some hidden power in the very things that you want to alienate yourself from. Mm-hmm. Welcoming those things and figuring out what they can bring you rather than what they threaten you with is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like, you know, how I remember speaking to my kids when they were little and they were afraid of going to the toilet at night because they were afraid of meeting monsters or um yes my my son actually was afraid of meeting legends on the staircase because he thought there was a program on the television which was called monsters and legends he thought that was the same thing so he was afraid of the legends on the corridor and we we talked about it and he came to realize that what he was afraid of was something in himself that he accepted that probably there wasn't anything out there anyway but that what he was imagining was very real and this was something he was producing it was his awareness of these dark things and if he could go out into the corridor in the dark and go watch out here comes the legend i am the monster then it was a game and it was something that didn't scare him, but that was a bit of practice of how he could own his own strength, not just in the dark at night, but also in the daytime. Mm. And that's a sort of an example of how we can do these things, you know, with our own dark sides or the things we fear in the world, owning them mm. and turning love- them around. I love that because, um, you know, this whole chat, I remember you saying something about, you know, try to stop life from being a, thought, a thoughtless accident. And, you know, this is very much what you do. You, you, you think about things in layers and, um, and it's, it's certainly changed the way I look at, at therapy, the way I engage it, the way I engage with people, loved ones. And it's, um, yeah, just, it's, it's so powerful to hear you use those little sort of um, experiences and analogies because they're so, they're so powerful, because they, they stick with you. Um, That's exactly and- it. That's exactly it. It's about liberating yourself so that you can live your life with deliberation, mm. deliberately. Mm. Mm. And find your direction deliberately. Mm. Liberate yourself to live deliberately. Mm. Yeah. And savor your possibility and your freedom and see what you want to make of it. And what you want to make of it will be different to what I made of it. And it will be different to what the next person will make of it. And none of it is worse or better, but make something of it. Don't Mm. let it be haphazard Mm. or chaotic Mm. or (laughs) just, you know, so agonizing that you wanted to stop. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, you don't don't allow yourself to be taken by that stream. You, you drive where you're going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't let the bad stuff win and take you over. Mm. Take the bad stuff and turn it into something. You know, it's all grist for the mill. It's all stuff you can knit something or weave something better out of. Mm-hmm. You want some dark colors in that weaving. You don't want it all to be mm. white or yellow. You mm. want the variety. So it's fine. Mm. Go for it. Mm. Don't fear it. Never fear without understanding what it is you're running away from and then run towards it. Well, unless it's something that's going to kill you, then <laughs> get the hell out of there. Yeah. yeah. The idea of personal responsibility that we are alone in, in, our, in our bodies and it's, it's only us that can, can make that leap, can, can make that Absolutely movie. for certain. And nobody but nobody can be the boss of you. Mm. Nobody can ever tell you what it should be like in your head because they have not the foggiest notion of what it is like in your mind Mm -hmm. and in your body, Mm -hmm. in your existence. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Never forget Mm it. Claim it. Yeah. I know we've got to to go and um, you just sort of raised something about sort of the the, the area that uh, Maddie and I are in, we're in sort of the, the psychology profession um, as counsellors and, and we often talk about how restrictive, um, um, you know, uh, methods are, the, the, the CBTs of the world, the DBTs of the world. Sorry to, yeah, sorry to interrupt, Jace, just uh, I was literally about to say that. <laughs> I was about to when, Emmy, when you said no one can tell you, you know, how, to, how to be in your head, well, maybe except for a CBT therapist. <laughs> Well, you know, this is the story of my life. I chose to work in the margins and to not be part of the establishment. Mm. I've never had a job in a sort of official university or a psychology department. I have had to figure it out on my own. And I am so grateful I've had to do that because, you know, these guys will take over your life and dictate to you how you have to work and how you have to be with your clients. No, but just know, you know, be human, be real, figure it out for yourself. Dare to do it because you'll, you'll, you'll contribute something different, something new, something fresh. It's all very well to have these frameworks and it's great people have worked them out. And I'm sure we know a lot more by people having done all that hard work. I don't want to slag anybody off. You know, it's all useful. But take it, learn it and then free yourself from it and go your own path. Dare to do it. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing way to end, um, Emmy. Um, and I just want to yeah, thank you so much on behalf of Maddie and I. Um, mm. Like I said at the start, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's so many sort of areas. And as you were talking, my mind is just, you know, bouncing around and, you know, you, you mentioned different areas and, um, yeah, yes. but. It could have oh, gone on for hours. Yeah. Hours and hours. It could be, yeah. But it's best to know when to stop. Yes. No. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The structure has a, has forced us to stop. Um, exactly. Or, uh, so you yeah. see, there's good to the structure too. 
yes. Finitude um, needs to be there in all of our lives. Yeah, that's so right. We say goodbye. Yes, we goodbye. shall. And thank you so much. And um, we'll, well, we'll thank try- you guys. That's been really refreshing. A really nice way to do the interview. Thank you very much for a really engaging discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank Bye. you. All the best. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Feel free to shoot us an email or send us a DM to our Instagram at Making Sense of Chaos, all one word. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.